I have a quietly held view of investigative journalists as being a bit like the Navy SEALs, the elite squad of the newsroom, experienced, battle-hardened individuals delving into the deep, dark corners of society to shed light on the stuff most of us would never get a glimpse of otherwise. They're the sort that'll knock back the black coffee, brush off most of what's thrown their way, and move on. I know it's not an entirely accurate picture since investigative journalism is a broad category, but it has a grain of truth to it. So what happens when the journalists used to dealing with the tough stuff have to face the horror that was unfolding at the Elmore Mosque on March 15, 2019 in Christchurch? What I encountered as I dove into it that weekend, spending time with journalists running on adrenaline and trying to make sense of what they were dealing with, was something none of them could properly prepare for. No human was built to encounter that sort of horror and carnage. I'm Frank Ritchie, a media chaplain, minister and broadcaster. In this series of podcasts, I'm sitting down with Christchurch journalists who are on the front lines of reporting the terror attack of March 15 as it unfolded. Having jumped into Christchurch to support journalists that weekend, watching their humanity, their professionalism, and helping them process what was happening in the middle of the frantic chaos, I'm keen for them to be heard and seen. What they did to support the real victims of the tragedy, while making sure the nation knew what was happening for those who had lost loved ones, deserves nothing but respect. Above all, they set the tone for how the rest of the nation responded. It was a tone of compassion, empathy, sorrow, and respect for the Muslim community as they grappled with their unimaginable losses. Welcome to episode two of Friday Prayers. In this episode, I chat with Blair Ensor, an investigative journalist for Stuff. Blair was one of the people who threw himself straight into the chaos. Blair's career lists as a check sheet of valuable experience, starting out in Christchurch student radio, ranging through crime and justice reporting, leading a newsroom, and now he's back at what he does best as a senior investigative reporter for Stuff. Blair has seen some things in life, but how did he handle March 15? Well, Blair, thank you for taking the time to to chat. I really appreciate it. No worries. So talk to us about what you normally do in your day-to-day work as a, as a journalist, because I'm guessing, as the, is the same for everybody, March 15 doesn't really fit the job description. No. no so I'm an, an investigative reporter for Stuff, uh, and I have a national mandate. So whilst I work in the press newsroom, uh, I report to someone in Wellington. Um, and I guess for the last... 12 to 18 months, I've dedicated a lot of time to a project called the Homicide Report, which is a database of uh, every homicide in New Zealand since 2004. And we've we've tried to unpack the trends behind why people in New Zealand kill. So what have you found? (laughs) A lot of things. And and, and look, to be fair, the terrorist attacks are a real spanner in the mix for us as well. Um, And uh, we we were due to launch that the week after the terror attack. Um, But we did to delay it a couple of months. And you know, there was a frantic sort of uh, effort to try and get the victims of the terror attack into that as well. So there was a lot of work that happened in a very short space of time. Would that have skewed your data then? Because we're talking 51 people killed in in one spot and you've been compiling all this data. How did, how did that change things? Well, put it this way, I mean, we haven't had a huge number of shootings in New Zealand. Um, I mean, we had, uh, there's a, there's a maybe 110 people or something in New Zealand who have shot people dead over the years. Mm. And... You know, you get one person that comes in and shoots 50 people, it skews the data massively. Mm. 
March 15, I, uh, I, I saw a headline, and I'm sure this is going to be the experience for many people. I saw a headline that said shooting in Christchurch, and I, I just moved on. I didn't go beyond the headline. And then I got a call from a radio station wanting to talk about that shooting uh, with me from my uh, perspective as a, as a minister, as a pastor, as a chaplain. That's when I knew something was up. Um, how did March 15 start for you? So... I was working on the homicide report at my desk, frantically trying to get this thing ready for uh, for launch the following week. And a friend of mine gave me a call and he said, there's armed police at the end of Dean's Ave. And I was like, okay. So I flagged with the news desk that something was going on. But at that point in time, I mean, armed police around Christchurch is not unusual, right? Mm. Um, but we sent a photographer, George Hurd, to the scene. And he, um, so he was en route. And then uh, a few minutes later, Fred Woodcock, who was the sports editor, he came down to the news desk and said there's three bodies outside the mosque, mm. or he'd heard that there were three bodies. And I was like, oh, hang on a minute. You know, this is, this, is, this is a bit strange. Like, A, there's bodies outside the mosque, and B, it's the mosque, you know. So a colleague, uh, Martin Van Baden, and I leapt in a car with a guy called John Kirk Anderson, a photographer, videographer, and uh, headed in that direction. But I, I will say things were... Um, tracking pretty slowly. Mm. Um, we went past the square and you could kind of see police starting to move people around and I was like, oh, this doesn't look quite right. Was it slow because they'd started blocking off roads? No, no, no. no. Well, we just were, in general? Just in general. I mean, we're talking kind of quarter to two here probably. Okay. Uh, or a little after that. And so I think people were just kind of starting to sort of, all the police were starting to work out that something quite bad was underway. Mm-hmm. Um, and I remember just getting this bad feeling and calling my partner and saying, look, I, I don't think I'm going to be home till late tonight. I'm not quite sure what's going on, but it sounds like something's happened over by the mosque. And we got down to uh, the museum and I wasn't particularly happy about how quickly we were going. So I just kind of said, look, I'm getting out. And I leapt on a lime scooter that was sitting there. And I remember heading down towards the hospital and it kind of reminded me a little bit of the earthquakes. There were police cars just with their horns constantly honking. And I'm mm. like, what the hell is going on here? And so I kind of carried on past and everyone was kind of heading in the opposite direction. And then someone said there'd been a shooting at the hospital when I stopped and I looked and there were police pushing everyone away from the hospital. And there were a lot of police and then there were just sirens everywhere and people were kind of just tracking down um, the road between the park and the hospital. The name escapes me. Um and so I carried on down there. Don't ask me why. I took a photo of the hospital, sent it through to the newsroom. Smart. And I just carried on through. And then a woman crossed the road and I said, what's going on? And she said, oh, there's an active shooter apparently in the park. And I was like, okay, that sounds interesting. And she said, something's happened over by the motel uh, over on Dean's Ave. So I, I can't explain why I did it, but I crossed the road and I went through the park on the scooter rather than... So you've just been told that a gunman is possibly in the park... So you go into the park. Yeah, yeah. And look, I, I don't know why. I've looked back on it and thought how stupid it, <laughs> it was, but I, I did it anyway. And I remember going cross-country on the scooter, and there were like acorns and stuff on the ground. Like the scooter wasn't particularly adept for those sort of conditions. And I, we, you know, this might sound humorous, but it was, it was pretty idiotic. And I remember someone behind me on a loud speaker yelling, get out of the park. Like what? I was like, okay. And I came out the other side, and there were cops that basically – ushered me down a side street at gunpoint. Mm. Um, and that was about 75 metres from the mosque. And then my reporting kind of began from there. Mm. Um, Let, let's, and- let's dive into the imagery in a second. I want to track back a little bit because there's a couple of really interesting things in your story. When you woke up that day, 
What, what, what would you have pictured the day to be like? Another day full of data and trying to get this bloody project across the line. Um, and do you do you get trained for uh, when a story comes in like this? I mean, you're talking about rocking across the park on your lime scooter. What sort of training goes on for something like this? Oh, I, I don't know. Um, there, there isn't really. You, I mean, I've covered crime for a, a long time, um, and we've always found a way to scoot around cordons and get as close as we can to what's going on. Um, and I guess it's just your own intuition and personal experience that kind of points you in the right direction and I, I can't explain why I did what I did yeah. that day um, I certainly wasn't trying to be any sort of a hero in fact it, yeah, like I say looking back it was, wasn't the smartest thing, <laughs> thing to do I think it's just journalist instinct though isn't it there's a story there I'm going to get to the story as quickly as I can by any means that I can yeah and look it was pretty obvious that something really really bad had happened like you could see the sirens mm. and uh, all the flashing lights and there were ambulances going in all directions and cop cars everywhere and so yeah it, it was pretty clear that you know we were sitting on something pretty big at that point in Christchurch. Yeah, you mentioned with the lime scooter, you used the phrasing "I leapt on the lime scooter." Oh, actually no. <laughs> I, I, if I if I unpacked it a little bit further, it was awkward. I remember getting really pissed off because my card wouldn't work properly, <laughs> so there was a delay in getting on the scooter. So you'd have been standing right by the scooter. We've got something unfolding at the mosque. You're standing by the lime scooter trying to work it out and get it to work, so you could leap on it and make your way to the scene. Yeah, I, and you know what when. I got to the scene I forgot to clock out as well and someone actually used the scooter to get somewhere else and it cost me about 40 bucks I think in the end um, but I didn't realise that until hours after the fact I, was, I, I hadn't thought about how I got there and then I suddenly thought shit you know <laughs> what, I, what I love about that image and I, I wanted to build that image because in the movies you see these things playing out and you've got the media van that screeches up reporters jump out they've got their cameras they're doing their thing in front of the in front of the camera this was nothing like that this just sounds ordinary it sounds mundane it's the stuff that we would use every day while this big things playing out it was grassroots yeah 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 and i think i think that's worth people knowing that actually our journalists aren't playing out usually this really big stuff they're doing things like that to get the story uh, you know and, and every time you go to i, I remember covering covering the carded and balloon crash years ago and i look i'll speak really frankly about this i i'd been out the night before and i got a call from my editor at the time joanna norris um, it must have been 6.30 or something in the morning and I, I was feeling pretty rough. And I literally got out of bed, got into the same clothes and um, took off towards Carterton, left my laptop behind, <laughs> left everything behind. Um, all I had was a satchel and a cell phone and I was there for three days and I had no laptop and I ended up having to go and buy underwear from um, the warehouse and whatever else. Anyway, long story short, the point I'm trying to get to is when I left the office on the day of the terror attack, I didn't have my bloody laptop again. And so I was caught short. I didn't have a battery charger for my phone, but there were other journalists that kind of came to the rescue yeah. uh, as well. So, um, And I think you were talking to Lisa Davies as part of this, and, and yeah. I remember her... Uh, you know, loaning me her charger to uh, 
you know. So and, and whilst there was competition on the day, I mean, it, you know, people knew that it was just such oh, a yeah. major story that we all kind of rallied around each other and talked talked through things. Yeah, you're all in it together. I remember turning up on the Saturday uh, in my capacity as a minister wearing my clerical collar, just walking into this group of journalists, asking them if they had had anything to eat because they were just standing there all day waiting for information, and watching them look out for each other and talking to each other was a great thing to see uh, cross brands. Um, we're normally people might assume that there's competition. The journalism community in New Zealand is not that big. Yeah. So you you get there, what happens? So, yeah, I mean, these, these images are ones you don't really forget. I mean, um, there was a group of people from the mosque. Um, it was kind of a combination of men and women. Um, and... Look, there, were, there was a guy there who I spoke to initially, and I think it was probably some of the first footage of anyone from the mosque that got out. I got my iPhone out, and I somehow managed to get it through the newsroom. Um, and I've tried on numerous occasions since then to go back and try and interview him. Mm-hmm. I, I mean, I've, I've got the picture that he now just doesn't want to talk. He's tried to pack it up and put it away. But he smashed the back window um, which allowed everyone to get out of the mosque and I remember the blood on his hands and he had stuff wrapped around his hands, shards of glass still pretty much in his hands and he was just telling me this story about this guy who was just going bang, 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 mm. bang, bang and you know some of the some of the stuff he was saying you just you couldn't really fathom it and he was describing the gunman in intimate detail and how you know there was just nowhere for anyone to go um, and so he had to smash his way out the back window and at that stage you just didn't realise quite how significant what these people were saying was and whether to believe what they were saying. Mm. Um, and so there were other, look, the language barrier at that stage was quite challenging for some of them. Uh, but this guy here, just he had so much to say and he was so willing to say it. Uh, and then uh, the other thing that really sticks with me is I, I was talking to these guys and then suddenly this big tall guy comes around the corner and he's just wailing with his arms in the air going, my wife is dead, my wife is dead. And I was like, whoa, like this is this mm. is not good, you know. And um, yeah, his his wife was the last woman shot. Um, I've, I've, you know, unfortunately had to watch the video on a couple of occasions to try mm. and unpack things for, um, for various bits of work we're doing. And, you know, I think when I heard it with the sound on towards the end, I mean, that was really tough because I was able to link the two of them together through other stories that had been written, and it was just, yeah, it was horrendous. Yeah, that's that's where for most people watching the news, it's it's moving and should be, um, it should gut us, but there's a distance to it, whereas for someone like yourself, you've stood there, you've talked to someone, then you've watched what happened to that person's wife. That's a big deal. Yeah, it was. Uh, I mean, I, I've I, I've covered a lot of tragedy over the years in my role, um, but I think this one probably affected me more. And I I was pretty open about it after the fact, and I made sure that I, there was counselling available at yeah, work. Good. And it was I'd never gone and seen a counsellor for anything, but for this, I I don't know what it was. I just didn't feel quite right. And I remember getting up the next morning, like I worked through till ten o'clock that night, or ten or eleven o'clock that night. Um, and then went home, and I remember getting up. I didn't sleep at all well, but I got up at the crack of dawn because I'd scheduled in a run for a, in the hills with my mates, and we were training for a big long trail run. And this was like something, you know, I'm I'm not much of a runner. It was close to thirty k's, and we ran to the top of the Port Hills and then out towards the ocean, and then down into Sumner. And I'd done it on about two or three hours sleep, and I just remember my mates were running out in front of me, 
and I was kind of lagging a bit behind and I calling out to them saying, hey, just, you know, don't take off, you know, don't leave me with my thoughts kind of thing. Because it was mm. just, there was just so much to process. Um, and, you know, equally, I mean, the, we were getting hounded in that, in that sort of two or three hours after the attack by suddenly international media mm. were phoning us because they were getting numbers off Twitter and whatever else. And, you know, I just remember telling them that, you know, this this sort of thing doesn't happen in Christchurch, even though in Christchurch we'd already had the earthquakes. Mm. But the earthquakes are one thing. A terror attack where someone kills 50-odd people is quite quite something else. Yeah, You can understand how, you know, a natural disaster um, claims lives, but not how someone is driven to the point where they can do yeah. that. Yeah, yeah. And the, the why questions of that are a lot harder to, to process and to work through and to deal with. Yeah. The other thing is I've, I've had to struggle with is that... I, Several years earlier, I'd done an investigation with a colleague of mine into a guy called Daryl Jones, uh, who was killed in a drone strike in Yemen. And a lot of that, uh, our reporting focused around the the Islamic community. Mm. Uh, and we spent time, I, I went into that mosque, I spoke to people. Um, and, you know, I, I don't know, my, my views about the Muslim community changed radically after that. And, I, and I've always thought, shit. Was my reporting of that stuff really fair? Did mm. I did I look at it objectively? Um, and so I've had to wrestle with that a bit because you know I, I've had messages privately pointing to our previous reporting, saying you know, you know, almost like shame on you kind of stuff. And and, and at the time we thought the reporting was really important. You know, we were mm. looking at a New Zealand guy or a guy with Kiwi links who uh, who had been radicalised and you know was killed in a drone strike. Uh, and I guess we always. You know, we were looking in the other direction, right? When mm. this happened, we weren't looking at white supremacy or anything mm. like that. And unfortunately, our views were somewhat tarnished to that community. What I will say is that since then, like going into people's homes and speaking to them, like the warmness that those families have is just, you know, going into, say, the home of Zahir Darwish, whose brother Carmel was killed. Um, and then his mother came out from Jordan and then she died. Um, you know, the day after her son's funeral here in New Zealand, that they were the nicest family. I've you know, it just mm. it, the, the you went in there and suddenly there was um, Turkish delight, fudge and uh, well, fudge and everything else you can imagine, and you felt really almost bad taking it from them. Like, yeah. but they and they they insisted that you have it, or the, and they were always willing to answer questions. Yeah, their hospitality is amazing, oh, isn't incredible. it? Especially yeah. when they when they could have gone into lockdown, the way uh, that they open themselves to the nation and help the nation process its grief and the talk about forgiveness almost instantly, I think, is mind blowing. Mm. Yeah, when you when you're in the thick of it, right at the beginning, there you've encountered someone who's rattling off a whole bunch of stuff, and you don't necessarily know if it's true or not. You've got all these things going on in your brain. How do you sort through what's going to happen in your first story? What you're going to write that that first time? Well, it wasn't necessarily a story though. I was feeding into a big beast, okay. and, and, and stuff. You know, it, it, it rolling coverage clicked in really, really quickly mm. from that first breaking news alert when I was on route saying there'd been an incident. Right through. I mean, it just rolled. It is. It's a big machine when it gets going, mm. um, and you know, in my view, the, the best breaking news outfit by some margin when it comes to this stuff. We've we've covered big events through the earthquakes, um, and so what I was doing was I was just picking up um, stuff as it sort of came along, like clips 
uh, any interviews I got and you just call it in or text it or do whatever you needed to do to get it through to the office and suddenly it would appear in the live blog. Mm. And obviously there were people fact-checking it at the other end or checking it for sensibility, anything like that. Um, it was just a process of gathering what you could and then someone else would try and make sense of it all. Man, that would have been, it would have been frantic, yeah. I would imagine. So much, so much going on, so much information to, to process. When you get home at the end of the day, you said you finished at like 10 o'clock. You got a wife, got any children? Uh, yeah, I've got a partner and two kids. Yeah, yep. partner and two kids. Uh, how do you tell them? They were all in bed, so okay. I got home at 11 o'clock. And that was just, you know, um, stuff set up alive live camera at the end of Dean's app. So my partner would text me saying, I know where you are at the moment. <laughs> so she kind of knew where I was. Okay. So she wasn't too too concerned. And uh, But she'd gone to sleep by the time I got home. And I, I mean, it would have been nice to be able to talk through some of what had happened that day. But, mm. you know, it was 11 o'clock at night. She had, we've, we've got a really new one and a three-year-old. So sleep's at a premium. <laughs> That's good. Now, you mentioned earlier the leaving behind, what was it, your charger for your phone, uh, laptop or something? You weren't properly equipped for this? Yeah, I don't know whether I really need to tell the world about being underprepared. Go on, you do. <laughs> but I mean, look, yeah, I, I, I guess in hindsight, you know, hindsight's a great thing, right? You oh, leap, totally. I, you take off to something like this and you think you're going to be back at the office in a couple of hours. Yeah. Um, and I remember with Carter, the Carter and Balloon crash, you know, I thought, oh, I've got a party tonight, I'll be back for that. <laughs> party quickly disappeared out the window, you know. Um, but... Yeah, I mean, I, I guess at the hindsight, it'd be really good to um, almost have a checklist when you head out the door. Put it this way, I, I always take my laptop now. I I, I've, I've kind of written it into a contract inside my brain that when you leave the office, you must take your laptop. Yeah. Although I haven't when I came here. <laughs> Hopefully nothing big's going to happen this morning. Yeah, I, I still need to go out and buy a better battery pack for my cell phone uh, because yeah. that's, I mean, those things there, you can do anything off. I could file stories, the works, mm. um, as long as you've got the power to do it with, you know, and i got pretty close to running out and it got to the point where someone from the office like oh it was after dark had to run something out to me so I actually had power and my video the videographer was getting pretty pissed of me you know <laughs> filing stories off his laptop as well <laughs> counseling counseling afterwards because this is uh, this is stuff no human should have to see no human should have to process and you, you can you can unpack as much or a little of this as you like what did counseling do for you I look, I think it's really hard to say what counselling does to you. If, if nothing else, for me, it was just a chance to talk about it. Mm. Um, and, and I didn't really know how it had impacted me other than that I just didn't feel quite right. Uh, and it felt good to talk to someone about it. Um, so, yeah, I don't know. I, I, I can't go beyond that. I, I, I will say that, you know, I, within the business I'm probably known as someone who um, has done a lot of death knocks mm. and has been quite staunch within that space. So I kind of felt that by going and doing that, perhaps some of the younger reporters wouldn't feel so uncomfortable about doing it yeah, as well. Um, so I made a real point of, of that. And I know we spoke in, when we spoke internally about it, which to uh, in a video that went out to all staff, that was something I mentioned as well. And I just thought it was important because, you know, I, I guess within journalism, a lot of people think they're bulletproof, and I yeah. did for a long time as well. And I guess that was the first time I really felt that there were some cracks starting to show. Yeah, yeah. I personally think it's really wise because I think it, it's really easy in journalism because of the the nature of the beast and how the news cycle rolls. It's really easy to go through a story that that's reasonably traumatic, whether it be that turning up at a car accident and seeing uh, the bodies, the various things that can go on. It's really easy to see it 
write the story, move on. I'm convinced that if that just keeps happening and there's no place to have a release, uh, then the cracks will appear sometime. Yeah, and look, there had been some, like George Heard saw a lot of stuff that day. He was there um, before me mm-hmm. and he was outside that mosque and he, he saw some bad, bad stuff. And I went down there afterwards with George um, and I'm talking three or four hours after the fact we got him behind the cordon and sort of did a mission through a culvert and popped out right in front of the mosque on the afternoon it had happened and all the bodies were still lying on the ground and it was, you know, it was a pretty grim scene but that compared to what George had seen earlier on that afternoon when things were really teeing off, um, you know, yeah, he, he, and I remember making a point of talking to him and saying, look, you need to make sure that you, you know, you, you talk to someone about this. Um, and look, I guess that'll be something you talk to George about. But you know, there was some harrowing, harrowing stuff that, some, particularly those visual journalists saw as well. I mean, they they are looking, you know, down a very narrow lens mm. at some, and and his pictures, a lot of them never got published. So yeah, yeah I can imagine, probably because they're. Just something the public shouldn't see. Just just like the video, which you talked about having to watch. What was that like? So the, I first saw it when I was down that side street, and there was a, an ex-member of the tribesmen who lived on that street, so the tribesmen gang, mm. and he'd been down to the mosque. And he came back and he goes, oh, we check this out. And he was showing me the... Um, the firearms with the photos of the firearms with the scriptures written on the side of it and, and twink. Yeah. And and then someone goes, oh, and holy hell, look at this video. Mm. And I I just couldn't, it was so hard to process because it looked like a video game. Yeah, that's the disturbing thing. Yeah. It's the sort of thing, on a screen, it distances the horror of that reality because so many of us have got on a screen and done pretty much that. Yeah. Yeah, and I will say I've played my share of those sorts of games over the year. I don't think I could do it now. Mm. I, the the idea of having to, um, or you know, playing something out in virtual reality versus, well, not virtual reality, but you know what I mean. Yeah. Um, and when you've watched something like that, it just doesn't sit right. Mm. Um, and I mean. When I first saw it, there was no sound. I didn't watch it with sound. In fact, it took it was many months before I watched it with sound. And when the sound was on, that was just harrowing. Like I say, those last few um, victims, you know, it's yeah. No one really needs to listen to that. Mm. How do you get back to normal work after something like that? I mean, the stuff that you're you're dealing with anyway is reasonably hefty. But how do you get back to sitting at a computer crunching data after dealing with something like that? Well, we. We quickly had to reframe the homicide report, so we were going to launch around um, domestic violence, but what we did was we then went back to police and got the licensing status of um, the people who had shot people previously in New Zealand and then broke down the types of firearms that had been used um, and kind of did an analysis of, of that. So we looked at the pros and cons of a gun register um, and just you know, hopefully what we did in that space was able to then inform the public debate better around um, what the country needed to do in relation to firearms reform. And I know that the, the police minister was quite surprised at the amount of people that had been shot in New Zealand. Mm-hmm. Um, but the legislation the government had introduced around MSSAs didn't cover the firearms that actually, you know, on an individual level had killed more people, like shotguns and 22s. And, you know, I think it's something like 80% of people who kill, or it might, it might, it might even be more than that, um, who kill in New Zealand don't have a gun licence. So um, we kind of just looked at how a register might change that landscape a little bit more and, and, and 
potentially curb the amount of guns getting through to the black market. Mm. So if you were to, and I know I know, as a journalist you probably don't like to do this, if you were to editorialise uh, about the topic then, um, what, what do you think we need to know as a nation and what could we be doing to make us, ourselves safer? In relation to what, to guns? To guns, yeah. Oh, I don't like to <laughs> kind of have my two You can say on. no comment if you like, but... I think you've got a unique perspective. To throw I, on the table. I think I think there's a lot of pros for a gun register in New Zealand. Um, not because it, um, if if you are a law-abiding citizen in New Zealand, I don't think a gun register really has too many ramifications for you. Mm. What it does, though, is it allows people to tra- police to track firearms that are stolen from people's property, um, and and it and it means that things are more tightly regulated. And they're able to track the flow of firearms through into the black market. And not only that, then if a crime is committed with a gun, then it's more easily traceable. Mm. Um, I've, yeah, so I guess I was of the view that a gun register was a good thing by the end of it. Yeah, I'd go with that. <laughs> That's what I wanted to put on the table. I think it's a good idea. Uh, we're coming, uh, coming up to the anniversary. It's the anniversary of March 15. Any triggers there for you? No, I, I don't think so. Uh, look... I, I haven't really reflected on it too much. I'm absolutely up to my eyeballs in another project, um, which launches not long after. It's probably good. Yeah, well, I don't know. I, I kind of feel like the last 12 months has almost been burying things beneath layers and layers of work. Okay. Um, it'll be good to be able to reflect on it, for sure. Mm. Um, and, you know, every time I run past, I run past the mosque a couple of times a week, and I always think about what happened, and I look down that side street and think, you know, shit, what an afternoon that was. Mm. Um, and... So, yeah, I mean, I haven't done a great deal of reporting on the terror attack-related stuff since then. There's a couple of dedicated reporters in the press newsroom who have been doing a lot of that work. Mm. Um, uh, But, yeah, like I say, it'll just be nice to be able to actually take some time to reflect about it 12 months on because it was such a massive news event. But for some reason, it actually feels so distant now, um, and I can't explain why that is. It's not like the earthquakes where it was there every day and it was in your face. Mm. Uh, You know, the terror attack was an event. And it's kind of very quickly slid uh, beneath the public consciousness to some degree. Yeah. The, I will say the incident that happened the other day, where a guy wearing a mask took a photograph of himself outside the mosque and you know posted it to an encrypted channel. I, I have thought since then, you know, you know, it, this would be the time when some idiot could do something similar again if it was going to happen. So mm. I guess, yeah. Well, I've, I flew in last night, and uh, to get to where I was staying, had to drive past the the mosque, and there was a heavy police presence out there. And we're recording this a couple of weeks before March fifteen because there are, there had been some threats. So clearly, it, it's going to keep it's going to keep coming up. And March fifteen, I think, for a number of years to come, is going to be one of those points where our security is heightened. People are on edge a little bit. But talking about the the moving on, I remember being here that weekend, and the Monday felt strange. The Monday felt strange because everybody had to go back to work. And so there'd been all the watching of the news and all the processing and all the talking and the commiserating that had gone on during the weekend. And then all of a sudden life has to kick back, which is where it's different from the earthquake. Because the earthquake, the ramifications of that for most people just kept playing out. Whereas this localized, small community and people had to move on. It's a strange thing to have to to have to deal with, uh, and nothing that we've ever had to deal with before. And hopefully, you never have to deal with it again in your career. No, but look, these news events just keep popping up, don't they? With a you know, every year there's there's something else 
of a slightly different nature that keeps journalists coming back to the yeah. job. Yeah, yeah. It's not just, that we, not that you know, anyone wants these events to happen. But as a journalist, you know, you you kind of sign up to cover. That's right. It's your job to react yeah. when stuff happens. It's your job to be there and to to tell us what's going on, to help us process uh, what's going on as well. Which is one of the reasons we wanted to do this little series, uh, because we often talk about the police, uh, fire, ambulance as first responders, which is true, and they deserve all the honour that comes with that. But the storytellers too. I mean, you you were there before some of the emergency uh, responders would have would have been there, and you're helping New Zealanders to process it, to tell the story. And if you do your job well, nobody really knows you. They just get the information that you that you're giving. I mean, I could probably mention the name Blair Ensor, and if I showed them the information that you've given, most people might recognise it, but they wouldn't know who you are. So I think it's important. That's why I, I've wanted to highlight your stories with us. Yeah, it's been a pleasure. Cool. Yeah, thank you. That was Blair Ensor. Our thanks goes to the New Zealand Broadcasting School at Utter Institute of Canterbury for providing recording space for this interview. Most specifically, our thanks goes to Ross Patterson, the technician who kindly donated his time to do the recording. Next, in episode three, I chat with TVNZ reporter Lisa Davies, whose humanity was well on display on our TV screens as she went live to air in the middle of it all.